is Matthew three thirteen through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. If I were uh, in your living room, we're having a little discussion. Uh, And by the way, that's one of the ways we apply the sermons at All Souls. We have a lot of different people that just get together and and talk about the sermon or study other scripture. And if you'd like a couple of questions from me that you guys could use when you did that, just email me and I'll put you on on the list. But if you were sitting around this week in in that time, and, and and I, by the way, I do hope all of you have a time where you're with your friends, you're with your people, where you're talking about the Word of God and what He's doing in your life. And in that time, if if the question came up, what what really happens to us in salvation? I suspect, if you're like me, maybe the first thing that you would answer would be, well, I'm forgiven of my sin. That's what happens when we're saved. And uh, you might tell a story like this. I've told it many times as an illustration. Uh, imagine that I'm in the courtroom where God the Father is, is the judge. Uh, I'm in my orange jumpsuit. I'm uh, guilty. Uh, I've broken the holy law of God. Uh, the penalty for breaking that holy law is, is death. God the Father bangs the gavel, declares me guilty, sentences me to die. And, and just as I'm about to be led away, uh, Jesus stands in the galley, makes his way to the bench. Uh, he, he says, Father, I will take Doug's place. I will pay the penalty for his crimes. Um, I will substitute my perfect life for his sinful one that he may be forgiven and go free. And the father, with a tear on his face, accepts his son's offer. Uh, my handcuffs are taken off. My chains are taken off. And and I go free as Jesus goes to death for me. That's our salvation. And if I were to be honest, I'd say for most of my spiritual life, uh, close to 40 years now, that's pretty much how I've understood the salvation. One of the things that I I think I'm starting to learn is that while that is... uh, a primary image in Scripture and a truthful image in Scripture for what happens at salvation. It's not the only image in Scripture for what happens in salvation. Uh, The courtroom scene is biblically based. It's legal. It focuses on law and the penalty that my sin has earned. But if that were the only metaphor that we had, the only picture the Bible gives us for salvation, we might be in trouble. Imagine this. Let's say you go down to the courthouse and Judge Sword is holding court. And for some reason, perhaps we don't understand, he he has found a way to satisfy the law while letting all the guilty people before him go free. 
And for a moment, the guilty people before him that are pardoned and set free are, are filled with joy and there's rejoicing in the courthouse and they all go back home. Well, if, if you're around our church very much and you're starting to think a little bit about the city and, and how people come out of poverty and, and uh, prison systems and all that kind of thing, you realize that story's not going to probably end very well. Because the person that's set free and pardoned is truly free. Maybe they strike it off his record, but he goes back to the broken family he came from. He goes back to the broken neighborhood he came from. He goes back to the broken sinful addictions that he was participating in, and probably he is going to wind up back in the courtroom. Because just being pardoned of a crime isn't enough to change us. Thankfully, the Bible says that God, in addition to pardoning us, forgiving us, as wonderful as that is, also adopts us. And so there's another little chapter to the, to the story I started out with, and it goes something like this. I'm standing there. God has declared me innocent. The son has come to take my place. The courtroom is stunned. And then, as I'm heading out the door, the judge says, wait. Doug, you're going home with me. I've already done the paperwork. There's a room in my house for you. You are now legally one of my own sons. I've even written you into my will. We're going to have lots of conversations together. I'm going to help you figure out why you're on the planet. I've adopted you as my beloved son. That's the other side of the beautiful gift of salvation. Now, last week we studied the baptism of our Lord in Matthew 3, and, and we saw two very wonderful things happened in his baptism. He was anointed by the Spirit, and God named him as his beloved Son. And we, we said that one of the things both the New Testament and the church has, has done with the baptism of our Lord is said it's a model of our own baptism that the same two gifts are given to us when we become a Christian. And I'm using the baptism in the very broadest sense there. We become God's adopted sons and daughters. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit. And of course, it's not identical to Jesus' baptism. Jesus didn't need to be adopted uh, to become the son. He was eternally the son. But that sense of being marked as God's beloved is something that happens to us as well. And so, as Jesse and I and some others were talking about this, we, we felt that since Pentecost was coming next week, we wanted to dwell on adoption this week and the reception of the Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. Now, Paul talks about our adoption in three places. And I'm going to read those texts to you. Romans 8, 14 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. In Ephesians 1, verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Now tonight, I want to essentially unpack the doctrine of adoption for us. And it begins with an assumption that is not one that we would naturally make, but it's what the Bible says is true about our human nature. And that assumption is that you and I are not born children of God. Let me say that again, because the whole doctrine builds on this premise. The Bible teaches that you and I are not born the children of God. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, actually says that we're born children of wrath. In other words, Not only are we not born into God's family, we are born into another family that is opposed to God's family. He even says that we're born alienated from the family of God. One theologian puts it like this, the pivotal premise of adoption is that sinners have lost the right to be viewed as the children of God. The prodigals have run far away To another country, their inheritance has already been irrevocably forfeited. And so the the picture that that we find in the Bible is that uh, apart from Christ, we are like orphan children uh, running around at night in the neighborhood. One of the things that that I get to do, especially in the summer, is I pick up some kids for swimming at Emily and Spencer Hall's house. And uh, one little guy keeps showing up earlier and earlier. Uh, this week it was an hour early. Um, and uh, we'll call him Randall. That's not his real name. Uh, when I take Randall home, Randall always wants to be dropped off at uh, Miss Emily's house. And last year at 10 o'clock one night, he asked if he could stop there so she could give him a snack, bathe him, and read him a story. Now, recently, a social worker uh, sent me some information on Randall. His dad is in prison and will not be returning for a long time. His mom is quite disengaged. Now, why does Randall keep showing up at the Hall's house over on Jefferson Avenue? It is because at 11, he is entirely alone in the world, and he longs to have a family. And the Bible says that in a similar way, we're all like Randall, that we all are born because of sin, alienated, isolated, lonely. These are the symptoms of the human condition. But when we become Christians, we're adopted as God's sons and daughters. Now, remember, 
Paul wrote the Galatians and the Ephesians. These were churches in Roman colonies. And so they were people that were very familiar with Roman customs and standards. And the Romans had a very clearly defined legal adoption process. It was called adoptio in Latin. And and when a Roman family would would adopt a child, all the child's relationship with the prior family were annulled. Uh, The child became a full member of the adopting family. All his or her debts or obligations were canceled. The newly adopted child became an equal heir with all the other children. He took on the family name. Um, The Roman ruling classes adopted more than anyone else to secure heirs for their dynasties. Uh, Julius Caesar was adopted. Trajan, Nero, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, and Caligula uh, all became emperors after they were adopted. The way you became part of kind of this royal dynastic uh, family was typically through or often through adoption. Now, another interesting quirk about adoption in Rome is you could also adopt slaves. And in that society, slaves were everywhere. I, I think about a third of of the typical Roman city was, was a, a, were slaves. Um, they had no rights under Roman law. Uh, I believe that you could even kill them or sexually abuse them uh, because they were considered to be your property. They had no social status. Paul says that we are all slaves, that we are all born slaves to sin. And so when our Heavenly Father adopts us, Paul says we are no longer slaves, but are sons, and we become daughters. John 1.12, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if you're reading this letter in a Roman colony, many of the people in your congregation probably would have been in house churches of about 40 And if you look around, probably about 10 of the people in the room that was reading the letter either were slaves or had been slaves. And so they knew exactly what Paul was talking about. They knew how radical your life could be changed by being adopted into another household. The Westminster Confession of Faith, that great reformed document from the 18th century, defines those who receive the grace of adoption as those who enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, are chastened by him as by a father yet are never cast off, but sealed for the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So what we're saying is that when you become a Christian, when you're joined to Christ, and of course baptism is a metaphor for that, it's part of that whole package, the New Testament can't imagine really salvation apart from baptism, when that happens to you, Your sins are forgiven. That's very, very important. But you're also adopted. And you become a son or a daughter of the king. Your identity changes. 
And, and, and friends, this is, this is so important to moving forward in the Christian life. I think many of us get stuck on forgiveness. Thank God I'm forgiven. I need to be forgiven. I appreciate being forgiven. And what we forget is there's so much more good news than that. The rest of the good news is that I have a new identity in Christ. I am a son of God. I've told this story to you, but I think it illustrates it well. St. Augustine, I think in his book Confessions, was talking about uh, what happened to him after he became a, a, a follower of Christ, after he was baptized into Christ. And Augustine, if you've ever read Confessions, had a, had a terrible problem. with He was essentially a sexual addict. And after he came to faith, he walked into a city where he'd had many mistresses, and one lovely lady came up and she said, Augustine, Augustine, don't you see me? It is I, it is I. And Augustine said, I know it is you. It's no longer I. Beloved, this is the heart of our faith. This is the heart of the good news. Not, you're forgiven, now don't screw up. But you're forgiven, now come with me. Let's do this together. Do you see yourself as a daughter of the king? Do you see yourself as a son of the king? There's a story told from the parable slave days where a, a very strong and powerful African-American man was in the horrible slave market, I think, in one of, in Charleston, and, and, and people were going around and treating him like animals, and, and this young man just had this regal bearing and, and looked straight forward and, and refused to, uh, to be undignified by the whole process, and one of the guys trying to buy a slave said to another one, what is the deal with that guy? And he said, oh, he's uh, the son of some king in Africa. See, he knew he was a king. He knew he was royalty. And he wasn't going to let anybody change that identity. You know how we often talk in here about the basement? Now, there's a conscious level that we say, I believe that, Son of God, check. But there's a basement, a subconscious level where we believe all sorts of things about ourselves. Friends, this is one that's got to go into the basement. You've got to get this in the basement. You've got to believe that you are the child of a father who has got this thing, who is in control, who is wise, who is good, who is your provider, who is your protector, who will care for you. He's got you. That's what it means to be adopted. I love that video that Jesse brought for us, that that idea that we will still fall into hold habits, but they don't have to define us because that is not who I am anymore. And so I ask you, do you see yourselves? Do you define yourself 
by your old habits. By the mistakes that you've made, the problems that you've had, the struggles that you're still experiencing, is that how you define yourself? Or do, do, do you honestly admit that you still struggle with that, but define yourself as a son of the Father, as a daughter of the King? You know, I can tell whether a person gets this when, when I have the opportunity in my office to have a conversation with someone and they start talking about their sin. There's, there's two different ways to repent. One of the ways that... Uh, that we do that is a very shaming, negative, vomiting of all the things I hate about myself. I'm this, I'm that, I can't do this, I can't do that. I'm, oh God, I'm just, ugh, ugh, ugh. That's a person who doesn't know their identity in Christ. The other kind of repentance is just as real, maybe even more painful, just as rich, but it, it has a different flavor to it. It is more, as, as, a, as a man told me once after he'd committed adultery, I knew he got it when he said, that is not who I want to be. That is not who I am. I am sick and disgusted because I acted in a way that is not consistent with who God made me to be. You know, a lot of our, our, our preaching, and I'm guilty of this myself, uh, you know, somebody called it, it's, it's, it's uh, like teaching pigs to fly. Uh, you spend the first half of the sermon, you're a pig, you're a pig, you're a pig, you sin, you sin, you sin, you're a pig, you're a pig, you're a pig. The conclusion, now go fly! Pigs don't fly. Eagles fly. Look at the way the epistles are laid out. The first half of the epistle, this is who you are in Christ. Second half of the epistle, now live like it. Indicative imperative. This is who you are. This is how you should live. A lot of times we go right to how you should live. You can't know how you should live unless you know who you are. Indicative before the imperative. You know, we were singing one of those songs tonight, and I was thinking a little bit about next week, and I, I was thinking a little bit about... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I'd, I have four. You think I'd be used to this. Uh, I, we were singing about the, the Spirit taking you away. And being open to just about anything. And in my spirit, I was saying, yeah, Lord, you know, I, lo- I love my life, but I'm open. I'm open, Lord. I'm open to, you know, whatever you want. Be right. I'm open. I'm open. And I sensed him say, are you open to doing the same thing over and over and over again? Until you die. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't sing as well. You know, I mean, they're not writing a lot of songs about that. 
but for, for me, where I am right now, that's part of where the adventure is. I'm, I'm not starting new stuff. I'm trying to be faithful to all the old stuff. And I watch my children go off and find their fortunes, or fortune would be the wrong world when you're in art, <laughs> when you're a dancer or a, an actress, um, but find their way in the world. And part of me thinks, man, I wish I was 20 again. Man, that's not fair. And then you know what happens when I get a little bored? I get tempted. It's really weird. This is probably, you know, I wrote this in my journal the other day. This is the, the biggest struggle in my life right now is boredom. Don't get me wrong, you don't bore me. God doesn't bore me. I love, I love my life. But I'm just, I'm 52, almost 53. I don't know how much longer I've got left, but it'll probably be doing the same thing day after day, day after day. I don't really care about writing the best-selling novel anymore. I don't care about building a huge church anymore. All I want to do is love you as well as I can, as long as I can, and go home. And sometimes it's boring. And the odd thing is, in these times of boredom, you start to think the dumbest thoughts. Be attracted to the dumbest things. And I have to come back. You are a son of the king. What does it look like to grow old as a prince? You know, that's what I want to do with you. When you bury me, and again, I still want you to cry at my funeral. We've already talked about that. But when you, when you bury me, more than anything, I just, I just want to be a faithful prince. I just want to be a faithful prince. We're watching on the History Channel uh, a wonderful little series about how the events of World War I shaped key leaders in their uh, leadership in World War II. It's fascinating. And they're looking at Stalin and Hitler and Chamberlain and those, not Chamberlain. <laughs> he didn't make it. Um, but uh, Churchill and Roosevelt and those guys. And last night we were watching uh, how Churchill started out. And I, I didn't remember any of this, but... Uh, he was born of the son of a very prominent British politician, and the narrator said that he essentially felt like royalty, that he was destined for greatness. And this metaphor is going to break down. But he came into the world with the sense that I'm here to do something great. And in the First World War, he quickly elevated to power, made a terrible mistake Millions or rather hundreds and hundreds of of troops died because he made that mistake and he was fired. And he thought his whole career was over. But he still believed, because he was the son of a great man, that he was a great man. And he did something no one in the upper classes ever thought he would do. He went to the front, and he fought in the trenches. And he came back and overcome this this horrific disaster and became the leader that he was meant to become. Not a perfect metaphor. He certainly wasn't a perfect man. 
but he knew who he was. And he didn't forget it when he goofed up. And everybody got mad at him and told him he was over. Has anybody told you you were over? Tried to find a job, they tell you you're too old, too young, too much a woman, too much a man. Don't believe it. It's not who you are. They don't control your destiny. You are the son of a king. Let's pray.